My guest today is Jesse Curtis. He's author of The Myth of Colorblind Christians, which is due out on November 9th. Jesse teaches at Valparaiso University. Um, your title, Jesse, is it assistant professor? Yes. Assistant professor of history? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today, Jesse. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Um, so why don't we start by uh, just outlining the thesis of your book? Sure. Yeah. Uh, let me give you five words. Uh, okay. Christian, Christian colorblindness protects evangelical whiteness. I don't know how much that that actually right. helps. That gives us more of an agenda than a um, than a thesis because pretty much all of those words need to be defined and unpacked. But uh, there it is in a five word package. All right, well, let's unpack them. So uh, colorblindness protects evangelical whiteness. Yeah. Um, right. So let's unpack Christian, it. Christian colorblindness. Christian colorblindness, Got it. Which, is, which is important. Um, I think that we we kind of know what colorblindness is, I imagine. Um, we think of this ideology of race that emerged in the civil rights era, 60s, 70s, and beyond, you know, uh, the appropriation of Dr. King's speech, uh, content of character rather than color of skin, and and the way that that has been appropriated uh, for sort of reactionary purposes. We don't need new laws. We just need to be nice to each other. And uh, so that's colorblindness sort of in the mainstream uh, that became a a political project, right, to sort of roll back the gains of the civil rights movement. Uh, Christian colorblindness, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me just, I want to make sure I'm tracking. So examples of the kind of colorblindness that you have in mind, uh, or the agenda that would advance colorblindness as a norm would be things like the idea that, well, we don't need anything like affirmative action. Right. Uh, because we, ju we should just be colorblind uh, or it's fine that our criminal legal system focuses on neutral procedural norms uh, and we don't actually need to look at sort of vastly disparate outcomes in the criminal legal context. Would that would those be examples of the, yes. the, that mentality? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and it's on, on multiple levels, right? On the one hand, it is a explicit legal strategy developed by conservative thinkers to roll back these race conscious policies, right? But in, in a lot of ways, even more powerfully, just as a cultural phenomenon of white Americans really coming to believe that the problem is we're too race conscious and we need to focus on what we have in common as Americans. And that's how we'll have racial progress. Uh, that becomes dominant among white Americans by the 80s and 90s. Um, but anyway, that's mainstream colorblindness. And I'm talking about something that is, is related and, and yet distinct, um, which is what I'm calling Christian colorblindness. And I think the easiest way to begin to get at it is to think about idioms. Um, because instead of talking about King's speech, we might talk about the Apostle Paul, <laughs> because after all, don't you know that there's in Christ, there's no Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. And so uh, in the civil rights era, there's a real uh, debate and question about as racial norms are shifting so rapidly, evangelicals are saying, you know, what, what's the evangelical way to deal with race? Um, and how can we deal with it in a way that maintains our influence, our, the appeal, right, of our gospel message? Like things are changing fast and, and we need to have a gospel message that's going to appeal in this, this new America. Um, 
I, I wonder if that um, that trajectory um, is reflected in kind of uh, let just take one specific example, like Jerry Falwell Sr.'s move from being very clearly a segregationist who gets involved in politics because he doesn't want to lose his tax exemption to, uh, all right, well, I was wrong about, you know, the segregation bit and let's just be let's just be neutral on questions of race and oh by the way let's also adopt economic policies that yeah, uh of a certain yeah. kind uh yeah. that clearly perpetuate um you know the kind of system that i favored explicitly 10 years ago right yeah i i definitely think that is is going on and it's it's good that you mentioned Falwell because i you know these kinds of figures dominate the narrative Falwell, the christian right and um i'm i'm sort of i'm sort of bored with it <laughs> right <laughs> i and and so in what I way what, in what way well i mean i think what you're saying is, is correct about Falwell's trajectory but i think that this narrative of white evangelicals resisting the movement the civil rights movement and then becoming Republicans has so like dominated the conversation that we haven't explored enough. Like, well, how did the movement change white evangelical institutions themselves? Like these institutions had to integrate for one thing. Um, colleges, uh, how did it change churches? And and these were the mm. pressing concerns for white evangelical leaders themselves. Uh, and I think that there's this kind of outside in political narrative that doesn't actually get at what it looked like from the inside. Um, and so the ways, evangelical, the ways in which, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, 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 I this is, I, this say, is fascinating. I, I, I want to make sure I'm tracking. I'm sort of a verbal process. Yeah. Sir. So, right. So, 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 um, there's this idea that like evangelicalism is like this, you know, this like pure thing. And then, uh, yeah, maybe there were some pro issues with racism. Right. But, but aside from that bit, um, you've got these sort of faithful evangelical Christians. And then there was this, um, uh, uh, influence that came in from the outside, this political influence that's kind of like mucked things up, right? Um, but that that really doesn't account for the way in which evangelicals actually use their theology to sort of justify this legitimizing myth of like white superiority. Yeah, yeah, that's well put. And, and that's where ironically the political narrative works both for critics of evangelicalism and evangelical elites who don't like the direction the movement has gone, they can say it got captured by politics. Mm. And, and critics can say, oh, it's just all politics all the way down. But neither of them are grappling with how from the inside, it, the, the theology does matter and their own institutions matter. And from the inside, when you're sitting there in church on Sunday morning or, or you're going to, to class at the evangelical college, it doesn't feel like you're participating in some kind of political juggernaut, <laughs> right? You're, you're, you're doing something else. And so the evangelical leaders in the 60s, they're thinking, you know, how do we maintain the unity of our institutions? How do we keep our constituents on board as we also make some course corrections here with respect to race? And, and that's where, you know, black evangelicals, even though it's a small group of self-described black evangelicals in the 50s and 60s, I think they're punching above their weight. Uh, people like Howard Jones, Billy Graham's first black evangelist on, on the team. Um, and they're punching above their weight because they're not saying to white evangelicals like, oh, you all are too um, 
too literalist in your biblical hermeneutic or you you're too fundamentalist or they're not saying anything like that they're saying you're not evangelical enough you don't take the bible seriously enough and if you did you would see that in christ we're we're all equal and you must include us you know so they're they're actually in the 50s and 60s black evangelicals are using a kind of christian colorblindness to say you need to change discrimination in Christian context is fundamentally anti-gospel. Paul said, in Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek. And so uh, black evangelicals are using these kinds of ideas to press for change, but white evangelicals use the same passages of scripture, the same idioms, the same concepts, for very different purposes, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you, you could see how you could see how certainly. Um, well, I mean, please correct me if this is wrong, but you could see how um, color blindness in a certain era would represent in, a pretty major improvement <laughs> on the status quo. Uh, but then you know that those kind of incremental improvements take place, and it's like okay. Uh, then white evangelicals sort of sort of shift the accent from race per se to okay now let's talk about like culture right and and so like what let's be colorblind with respect to race um and maybe we'll talk about how sort of white evangelical culture is uh superior to uh, other kinds of culture and that's why you know the median white evangelical has certain economic resources at their disposal and other people don't because the, the culture i'm using air quotes right 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 yeah i mean i think that's right there is culture talk um and that's an old saw you know in american culture all, all over the place as we shift from race talk to culture talk right um <laughs> And I, I also think, I mean, they're still, it's, it's, it's still fundamentally, it's theological talk, um, oh, yeah. which, which to me is important in that, you know, to say we're one in Christ is, is to, you know, making us, uh, it's a, a biblical interpretation it's a theological claim and like by the late 60s it's like evangelicals across the spectrum can make that statement and say that it's true but have fundamentally different purposes for <laughs> in making it and um that's where i mean context is everything i mean race is such a slippery fiction in the first place it's nothing if if not contextual and so as you as you said for in the context of discrimination and overt sort of white supremacy to say look the bible tells us that we're equal and things need to change it's a fundamentally progressive um forward-looking message but then for white evangelicals to turn around and say you know we're one in christ our, our identities as christians are what's supposed to define us so if you were a mature believer you wouldn't always be talking about race you know that's a whole different message or to say you know you bringing up the hey mr black evangelical when you're bringing up these experiences you're, you claim that you're having of racial discrimination in our institution, you're really threatening the unity of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. We're all supposed to be united together here, so you better stop talking about race. Mm. So the context completely shifts. Yeah. Hmm. So it went, it, it went from in one context, I just want to make sure I'm tracking. So in one context, you've got 
black evangelicals pointing to to color blindness as certainly an improvement on the status quo and then fast forward a couple of decades and you've got white evangelicals appealing to color blindness as a way of silencing dissent. yeah exactly wow. yeah fascinating and it how do you, you know how do you how do you see this oh sorry go ahead oh no no go for it no i'm more interested in what you have to say well just just that there's such a consistent um and and it's it's characteristically evangelical right to appeal to the bible and think you've settled something right but of course the problem is that people can't agree on what it practically means right and so black evangelicals are consistently saying this is quite concrete because we're one in christ power relations need to be reordered and white evangelicals are saying because we're one in christ the the hierarchy here doesn't really matter we're all united anyway <laughs> right so you just touched on the two things the two directions <laughs> i wanted to take things right which is one is how is how is the the dynamic that you've just outlined just another iteration of this long pattern of certain kinds of social hierarchies that are legitimated by appeals to christian theology and then underlying those appeals to Christian theology, this is the second point, you've got, um, and I, I, think, I think appeals to the authority of Scripture often, particularly when it comes in the context of disputes about biblical interpretation, appeals to biblical authority are just propaganda. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that uh, they appeal to an ideal, namely biblical authority, in service of an agenda, namely uh, certain people being in charge of what the Bible means, that actually undermines the ideal that they're appealing to, namely biblical authority. Because what you right. end up with is people basically in positions where they say, like, I, the, look, the, the upshot is they get to decide what the Bible means. And so they're the ones in authority. So, yeah. so yeah, so I, I'm interested in tracing that, that this is for selfish reasons to do with my own research, right? I wanna, I wanna trace out um, that the hierarchy bit that just runs straight through to the antebellum yeah. South. Uh, yeah. And then these appeals to to a, the authority of scripture that are, in fact, um, just people in positions of power who get to say what the Bible means. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff, Scott. Yeah. And and part of I don't know if this. I think this relates to what you're saying a little bit. I mean, part of what I'm fascinated by is is the process by which white evangelicals shift from seeing and liking and endorsing the hierarchy to literally no longer seeing it anymore. Like I would argue, like in the post-civil rights era, it's not that they're putting up a facade, like they believe their own BS, <laughs> you know? Right. And so how that plays out where the hierarchy goes from, and I, I call it sacred whiteness, like, because I didn't want to call it segregationist theology because I didn't want to locate it as distinctly Southern. Like part of the whole point is that it's national, right? right. And, and well, so- So I just, I want to push back on one thing there, right? Sure. Which is, which is um, you say that the hierarchy is no longer explicit. Um, racially, maybe, but in terms of gender hierarchy, it's absolutely yes. explicit. And yes. I don't think that those things are unrelated. Yeah, yeah. So I, no, want to, I want to know what you think about all the stuff that I, I just threw out a bunch of stuff and I want you to organize it for me. <laughs> I want you to tell me what you think about all that. Well, I, I mean, I think you're right about the, the gender hierarchy. And, if, if, you know, there are interesting questions about how gender in some way maybe kind of replaces race. Like we, we can't be explicit about race anymore, but now we're going to be even more explicit about gender <laughs> i think that's i think that i think that's certainly at play there because you see white segregation or sorry uh white enslavers right in the antebellum south using theology to to justify these institutions and using exactly the same kind of rhetoric that you see patriarchists using now who explicitly like refer to themselves as patriarchists right, right. and 
the the same enslavers uh, uh, they they also refer to patriarchy, and so it's there's a sense in which the sort of current defenders of patriarchy within white evangelicalism are using exactly the same rhetoric. They just took out the references to slavery. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I I think this connects. If if we jump ahead, if you know, you think about the promise keepers in the '90s. I mean, that's the point in my in my book where their gender comes into play a, a bit and I mean inevitably at that point but um, you know promise keepers has this vision of Christian manhood that uh, I mean it's not a it's not that like sort of hard-edged patriarchy in a way because it's kind of this uh, you know like Kristen Dumay talks about the the tender warrior archetype and things but What's interesting about that expression of gender hierarchy is that part of it, it, it includes race as a, a good Christian man crosses racial boundaries and makes friendships and pursues racial reconciliation. And that becomes the sticking point in the 90s where it's like, it's okay. Like we like this vision of Christian manhood you're presenting but not the race part, because that challenges, and even in a limited way, that challenges our rarely spoken racial hierarchy, and we don't like that. I, so I wonder if, as a way of some sort of summarizing, well, what, what do you think of this idea? Okay, so um, colorblindness has a way of sort of silencing or muting uh the fact that there are sort of uh differing perspectives differing experiences and therefore normalizing sort of the white evangelical experience so that yes. either you fall in line with sort of the white evangelical perspective on things um most notably that like the the allocation of resources in our society is perfectly fine um, and therefore, if you don't agree with that, like, it's not just that you're not a white evangelical since we're colorblind it, like you're not really an evangelical. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where in with Christian colorblindness, the stakes are higher in, in, in racial debates in, in evangelical circles. The stakes are higher because it's not just a matter of like, oh, you have, you know, you're, you're a little too liberal there. You have some misguided ideas. It's, you're not a good Christian. Because, because Christian colorblindness assumes this status of common sense. It, it has, supposedly has biblical authority. And so it protects this, you know, and this is what I, I call it evangelical whiteness. Because these are folks who are living as white people in a society of racial hierarchy, being treated as white people, experiencing the benefits of that, making decisions about schooling and housing and all sorts of things as white people. But their self-understanding is, I'm just a biblical Christian. Right, right. And and uh, yeah, that modifier biblical. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, and you were, of course, getting at this earlier, but once you, once you see it, it's so obvious, right? But it collapses any distance between what the Bible may say and my interpretation of what it says, right? And it becomes, I mean, you already said it, my interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, that's I try to get at this in the book a, a little bit that that that's racialized as well that there's this long history of and and this is where like evangelical whiteness hey you know maybe we don't have strong opinions about you know public policy x or y but we have a very strong sense that we have biblical truth that um, there's, and, and in, in the 50s, 60s, of course, it's more explicit, but this deep association between whiteness and biblical um, 
like responsible interpretation and like rational um, uh, approach and theological rigor and black churches being deficient in that way. They're too emotional. Uh, they're, they're too feminine. You know, we can connect, connect the gender here as well. They're black churches, they're emotional, they're feminine, they're, uh, don't have the theological rigor and sophisticated biblical interpretation that we do. And um, even though people are less explicit about that now, I think that those associations remain. Um, there's a interesting, I think it was Eternity Magazine, 61 or, or 63. The guy is, is describing the black church as like an orphan that has been abandoned by its mother, which is like the white evangelical church. Like we, he's like calling the white evangelical church to action. Like we need to help these people. Like after the civil war, we abandoned them. And is it any wonder they're struggling now? Like we, you know, um, and so I'm that making a face kind of, for the listener. I'm making right. right. Is, uh, and um, so the idea that whiteness itself carries some kind of spiritual authority. Uh, to me, that persists. And I'm, I'm a little I'm trying to think of a better way to put that because I'm I, I can imagine the skepticism, right? Like it's one thing like it's just a little unconvincing right to say it was more explicit back then and i'm telling you it's still it's still around um i'm trying to think of it as well so uh maybe as a way of sort of uh bridging sort of how it was you know the the the, the potential gap between well it was explicit back then but it's still there now um the way it shows up is in references uh, to, for example, black liberation theology yeah. and the idea that there's something, well, just the, the whole way that liberation theology is marginalized yeah. in, in conservative white evangelical institutions. Now, is it the case that, say, in the Latin American context, which, first of all, there's a difference between liberation theology in Latin America and black liberation theology. There's a connection, but there's also a difference. Um, but in any case, is it true that that liberation theology was uh, sort of appropriated in some cases in Latin America by like Marxist figures who didn't actually care all that much about Christianity? Sure, absolutely. But if you read Gustavo Gut Gutierrez, right, or Which other like, do, by the way. what's that? I need to do that, by the way. Well, OK, but uh, if, or other like liberation theologians who are actually theologians, like you don't come away from that thinking like, yeah, that guy's definitely not a Christian. Like that, like what, what, so, so it's, but if you just throw out liberation theology in certain uh, conservative white evangelical contexts, it's just everybody rolls their eyes like, yeah, conservative, uh, yeah, they say, uh, yeah, liberation theology, like a bunch of Marxists, like, no, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, yeah. so, but that is where it shows up explicitly. Yeah. Like yeah, that's, that's not the correct theology. Yeah. Yeah. And our theology doesn't have a name. It doesn't have, you know, it's just theology. There you go. That's the simplest way to put it. There's no modifier, <laughs> right? It's not, yeah. it's not white evangelical theology. It's just theology. Yeah. But you know, what's, I mean, this is a fascinating wrinkle in the story I tell. There were white evangelicals, people like C. Peter Wagner, Donald McGavern, who were saying, you know, we need to realize that we have a, um, particular theology that's culture bound and we need to embrace colorful theologies but they were doing that for such a sort of paradoxical purpose as as part of the church growth movement and sort of trying to legitimize their own use of whiteness as like a, having a legitimate part in this sort of flowering of of pluralistic theologies and cultures um, that, you know, we can use, we can use whiteness too <laughs> in this, in this uh, process of um, growing the church. I wonder so if you talk, I wonder if you talk in your book about the, 
uh, effort to emphasize diversity to the exclusion of conversations about uh, justice. <laughs> yeah, I, I, a little bit. I mean, I think that becomes, yeah, that's a much easier conversation um, for white evangelicals to have. I'll talk a little bit about it in a, a chapter that is to a large degree about the American city and white evangelicals engagement with it. And there is kind of a moment in, I mean, this is like David Swartz and others have talked about the evangelical left in the seventies and they kind of have this moment where it looks like they're going to be a, a significant force. Um, this is another path evangelicalism could have taken. Um, and there is this space of like experimentation where evangelicals are trying new things in the seventies and doing crazy things and uh, <laughs> trying to imagine other ways of being evangelical, including in the city. But to me, exactly like you say, it gets like domesticated, like it becomes a kind of evangelical tourism, like diversity, instead of talking about justice, let's consume diversity, mm. like an experience that you have. Like I expanded my horizons a little bit. I visited the city. I, I took a class. I, I had a cross-cultural experience right and it doesn't actually get at uh justice as such it actually fits quite well in the white evangelical sensibility that like we can make interpersonal connections across difference and in that way really make progress yeah like like uh like i'm gonna sit here like me the consumer right i'm gonna sit here and you bring your perspective to me and i will consider it uh, yeah. And I will be improved by it. Yeah. 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 But now to be, to be fair. Um, I mean, this, to me, it's fascinating to look at evangelicals, including white evangelicals who sort of found themselves on the margins of the movement. Right. Or who found, you know, and may, maybe other evangelicals calling their evangelicalness into question. Right. And um, people who, really were animated by their faith but found that the the rules that they had learned about race and theology and things like didn't line up with the real world they were experiencing and you see that like in college students who had like immersive experiences in cities like okay i went and i lived in this black neighborhood and i found out that christian colorblindness like fractured right away <laughs> like it didn't it didn't describe reality and it didn't work um and but but to me it's an enduring question for me is like like you can see lots of people having experiences like that but it's like it never reaches critical mass right so and, and having those experiences actually cuts you off from the white evangelical mainstream, right? Right. So that's what I, okay. So this, we're, we're like on the, I think, I think we're on the same like wavelength, right? Because what I, where my mind is naturally drawn next is um, at the institutional level, right? Um, and the way that power functions, like if you, if you question certain things, certain orthodoxies uh which are uh th then um you i mean you're you're in jeopardy of losing your job right right and so uh what do we do about that <laughs> the, yeah. and, and i know and i know what the i know what the arguments are on the part of the people in uh positions of power many of whom understand that this is all of this is going on like they're not some of them may be naive, I don't know, uh, but a lot of them aren't. Like they know exactly yeah. what's happening. And their, and their idea, I think, uh, just to be sort of, honestly, this is the most charitable gloss I can put on it. 
they think that like they have a constituency, the people in the pews, and that their resources are going to dry up if the 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 people in the pews get the sense that like uh, things are going in some kind of like leftist Marxist. Uh, although it has nothing to do with Marxism, right? You got you can't have that impression out there because then people will stop giving, and then all of us are out of jobs. Yeah, I, so I think that's one hundred percent correct. Um, I mean, I, like. Like Adam Latz in his book, you know, his book, uh, Fundamentalist You, about fundamentalist colleges in the 20th century. Um, I mean, it's it's great just as as what it is about about that. But even if you're not interested in that, I think it's so sophisticated and and um, spot on about these kind of constituency dynamics and what leaders of institutions are solving for. Right. And the pressures they're under as they try to navigate these things but anyway um i don't envy see i it i i i get to sit back and write a book about, about it right <laughs> but like when you're in an institution i mean i think one i think one of the other things that people are thinking you know whether it's a local pastor or uh, at, at the level of a pastor it's most obvious because you literally you see your constituency in the pew on sunday morning right but you're thinking, yeah, I could push harder. I might lose my job. And then they'll replace me with someone who's not going to push them at all. So what's the point? Let me keep my job. And I, I so I don't like I don't want to be cynical about it. Like I all those things are going on, but there's also the calculation of like, I'm really trying to do good here. And I want to push without pushing so hard that it blows up. Sure. Now, I'm not saying <laughs> that collectively, clearly there's, there hasn't been enough pushing going on. <laughs> right. Well, no, I mean, like I have, I have, I have personal friends who are in this situation. So I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to say that, uh, that it's really simple and they're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, but here, but one thing that I think now maybe I'm just maybe I'm just ignorant of uh, some history here, but I think one thing that seems to be different from at least what I'm aware of in previous uh, eras is you've got a, a a whole group, and it seems a growing number of scholars who have an interest in this subculture who are not beholden to. Yeah conservative evangelical institutions and that's i mean honestly that's sort of in, in my own journey right i mean that's sort of how i came to focus on some of these questions because i'm at uh, a catholic institution that like doesn't like they don't care about yeah. <laughs> about uh yeah. you know uh, maintaining some kind of status quo and say the SBC or you know conservative evangelicalism and so i feel a sense of as someone who is really familiar with the subculture uh i feel a sense of obligation to uh say certain things that other people i know just can't for because they have a mortgage and they have kids yes and they can't lose their job yeah there seems to be a lot more That's... people doing thinking that way who are in positions to actually speak into the situation yes and i'm so yeah i mean dumay's book is that's very different from reading Noel, Marsden, Carpenter. There, there's a new generation that, that um, you know, the book that you'll eventually come out with. I'm, I'm assuming uh, my book. It's, it's a, it's a whole different approach, really. Um, and I'm one of the things I'm really curious about is if. I'm not going to say if it matters. I'm sure it matters somehow, but how it matters. Like, I do think, well, academics, we've been known to take ourselves too seriously sometimes. Indeed. Um, <laughs> but like, because the, the mass of people in the pews certainly aren't listening to us, right? But I do wonder if it's going to matter in that 
you know, precisely the people you're talking about who feel constrained in the positions they're in, they do hear us. And then, and, and so in a sense, they're getting pressure, not just from below, but they're getting pressure from us in a way that maybe they didn't a generation ago. I, 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 I'm not sure though. Well, I do, I do, I do hope that, that we're, that this body of scholarship, which is, I mean, I think another interesting part about it is that, um, it's not purely just academic stuff, right? So if you look yeah, at like true. Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, yes, they're publishing in like top sociology journals, uh, but they're also writing work that's like accessible at a popular level. Obviously, Dumay's book is accessible. It's rigorously yeah. researched, but it's also accessible. Uh, now, I'm not I'm not naive enough to think that like you know everybody in a given like church in the deep south is gonna you know read this stuff and say like oh wow we've been doing the wrong thing. Um, uh, not to pick on the South. I realize that this, it's a broader <laughs> dynamic than that. You, are, uh, you already went there, Scott, <laughs> right now. Um, uh, uh, yes, but, uh, but, but, uh, but I also, I think since the truth has integrity, right? Um, I think when we get to, uh, if, if enough of the folks at the in, sort of in institutions like seminaries or whatever, right, get on the same page, there's a there's a sort of gray area where they can stop pushing certain narratives yeah. um, without fear of losing their job. And like eventually you're going to get to the point where you have a critical mass of pastors that have come through who just haven't been taught certain kinds of myths that yeah. serve to promote this legitimizing narrative. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I hope you're right. I I'm I'm perpetually confused by this. Scott. I really am. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening right now. <laughs> like, it seems like, like I look at Demay's book and, and it's been so fun, by the way, to watch it take off. Like I got it back in the beginning and like my mother-in-law was like, oh, what's that? And then like six months later, she's talking to me about this book that I should read. And I'm like, well, that's the one I was, <laughs> and, you know, like she had heard about it word of mouth and all of these people who, don't normally, you know, but even then I'm like, who is reading and enjoying this book? And like, are they still even evangelicals by the time they're done reading? <laughs> like, I, it seems like evangelicalism is splintering and I don't, like, I'm confused about even like, like where, like young pastors going through seminary the people being trained now like where do they go then <laughs> right like, i i don't know i i don't know man i i don't know where all this is going it it because because it seems like there's for a long long time you if you squint you can always see like ferment on the edges of evangelicalism. And then it's like, there's this massive mainstream that like seems impervious to it. <laughs> right. They're always and, dragging their feet. Well, yes, but, but that, that I think we should reframe, right? Because please, that please. is what, please do please reframe it. Well, like that's, that's like from our, our perspective, right? Like I wish, the white evangelical mainstream would agree with me, but they're dragging their feet, you, you know? Right. But like, I think that the white evangelical mainstream is very entrepreneurial and energetic and creative and successful, <laughs> you know? And so they're not, they're not have, dragging their feet. They're, they're, they're reef. Go ahead. Well, we have this tendency, like, you know, in, in my book, I'm talking about like how we frame them as like they lost the civil rights movement. But like if they lost, why did their churches start growing like gangbusters after the movement? You know, right. and so. Anyway, that's just well, okay, and so there's so there's another strand of argument among political scientists uh, who are concerned about these things, right, that uh, the sort of 
I guess what we're referring to is the white evangelical mainstream uh, ha is aware of the fact that they've basically lost the culture war. And so um, they're adopting kind of like authoritarian tactics uh, quite explicitly. And so that's where you see some figures in, in the movement um, embracing like Victor Orban and saying like, yeah, that guy, yeah. that guy knows how to do it. Yeah. Right. So like we've lost the culture war at the popular level. Um, so we're just gonna, we're just gonna, we're just gonna take a different tack. Uh, yeah. that's, that's totally undemocratic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, oh, there's a lot to say about that. Like the context now is so different from what it was just a quarter century ago. Like white evangelicals do, I think, feel like they've lost in a way. I mean, I think as recently as the 90s, they could feel like they were winning. I mean, you think about what the politics of, you know, gay marriage and everything was in the 90s. You know, it, it's so different. And, uh, but I think part of what we've lost sight of is how if you were sort of on the underbelly of these institutions in the decades before this, this sort of authoritarian bid for power that we're seeing politically and socially now, that already looked familiar to you. You already saw it in white evangelical churches and other institutions that, you know, if, if you were black, if you were gay, if you were a woman, you, I mean, well, I don't want to overdraw the portrait, right? Because part of the ambiguity and part of the appeal of these spaces and why these white evangelical spaces have been so successful is because they have appeared to be welcoming and many uh, people have found homes in them. Um, anyway, now I'm, I'm well. One, the one thesis that I'm developing is, uh, or I should say that I'm thinking through uh, with the benefit of you know, work that I've been reading is that I wonder if the basic divide that we're seeing um, show up in new ways in evangelicalism currently is the divide between those who see morality as fundamentally hierarchical, which is to say um, it's obedience to authority uh, versus those who see morality fundamentally as uh, a matter of justice. And like, yes, it's a good thing to, you know, do the right thing and obey like legitimate authority or whatever. It's not that it's not that like they're anarchists. Right. 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 Um, but but morality is fundamentally a matter of like objective moral truth that I mean, it goes back to like the the Euthyphro problem. Right. Is good God or is God good? Mm. Uh um, is is moral rightness a matter of conformity to certain uh, universal uh, principles, right? Or is morality fundamentally a matter of like, you know, uh, I guess as Foucault puts it, like the morality of obedience to whoever happens to be an authority. And it's just like, I mean, these folks talk as though like um, morality is a matter of obedience and ultimately, we're supposed to be obedient to like God, who is an authority, just because God is an authority, <laughs> and whatever right. whatever God says, like that's 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 uh, what you do. And God could have commanded the opposite, and the right thing to do would have been to do that. Right. And that I wonder if that's the divide, right? There's justice and hierarchy. How does? Yeah, how, I mean, how does that work out socially? I mean, because that's so. Um... Obviously, ordinary people are not consciously thinking in those terms, right? Well, I don't want to say obviously, um, but. Uh, so I, I do think that ordinary people are sometimes thinking in those terms when it comes to gender hierarchy, because True. that's taught explicitly. Uh, but the way that it shows up is if you're thinking hierarchically, then you look at certain uh, disparities in uh, wealth or power in society just as an expression of moral order yeah yeah okay. uh and so they make sense to you right yeah um and you say like well look i mean if you're if you um like folks in certain groups 
uh, are statistically disproportionately likely to have less uh, because, I mean, uh, like look at their culture, air quotes or whatever, right? Um, versus folks who say, yeah, but like if you look at if you look at the history of our country and like the injustice that's, you know, rampant throughout the history, yeah. then like it, it makes sense that things are this way in that sense. But like, it's not OK. This is yeah. this is this is a result of human sin. This is not an expression of God's design. <laughs> yeah. But but if that's the divide, Scott, I mean, that, you know, I that goes back to my question about evangelicalism splintering, because I don't like if you're on the justice side of that, then I'm like, I'm not even sure if you stay in evangelical, like, like Anthea Butler's book, White Evangelical Racism, that came out earlier this year, you know, just a short little book. And I thought she was really strong on just in a pithy, succinct way, sort of saying and showing like, of course, white evangelicals had to build a privatized um, uh, social hierarchy endorsing religion because they were slaveholders, you know, like, and, and it comes all the way down to the present. And like, if your religion isn't endorsing the social order, are you even evangelical anymore? <laughs> sure. Sure. No, I no. I think if you're on the justice side of the divide, then I don't, I don't see how you, how you can't have reflected on the question of like, whether you count as an evangelical. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I think that is the divide. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, but I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm open to pushback. Um, but, but, but I guess, I guess if, if you're framing that by way of an objection, right. Like, well, no. if you're on the justice side, are you even evangelical? I'm, I, I accept that. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I say like, I, yeah, that's a question you got to ask yourself. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not objecting. I'm, I'm questioning and, but it's, but it's interesting I actually wouldn't want to push it too far because I'm so conscious of these self-described black evangelicals that I talk about in my book who are insisting like there's a better way to be evangelical and you don't get to say I'm not an evangelical, right? Because I care about justice. Right. And, right. and so, you know, I think that drawing attention to those voices, um, you know, there's some there's something worthwhile in in saying, hey, you don't get to define evangelicalism, right? Right. Um, so so that's worth thinking about as well. Right. Um, yeah, there's something to be said for just being like difficult about it, right? Saying like, nope, <laughs> nope, I am I, I count as an evangelical, um, yeah. and I just disagree with you about these things. Yeah. I wonder if Jesse, uh, after I read your book. Uh, if I might have you back. Yeah, that, that would be fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this has been very helpful. And I and I realized things were kind of scattered because I was just, I, um, the thesis of your book is exciting to me. And it, and, and I, I just, uh, like I, I said, I'm thinking through some stuff. So. And yeah, I would love to come back and um, talk about the book in more depth. Um, I have so much like personal, you know, like my book is like autobiography, you know. Oh, wow. I mean, not literally, but like in terms of trying to understand my own inheritance and everything. Right. And so there's that whole angle, too, that I think it it could potentially be useful. Um, like I'm not like this detached academic throwing stones from the outside. Um, so that actually, I think, is an interesting angle. So you, um, you, do you have a minute? Could you, could you, could oh, you just sure. say a little bit about that? I grew up in, um, my dad was a pastor, uh, evangelical or depending how you're defining terms, more of a fundamentalist kind of, um, evangelicalism. Uh, I mean, we were homeschooled. We did the Bob Jones curriculum, ATI, if that means anything, <laughs> Bill Gothard, um, Anyway, so so we were in deep, right? And um, in many ways, I had an idyllic childhood. But um, when I 
I went to Moody Bible Institute um, for college and it wasn't Moody itself as much as it was the city that really, really threw me and knocked me on my heels. And uh, I was trying to, because I had grown up in this just rural, white, Christian space. And to me, that was that was just the norm. And um, But anyway, I met the woman who became my wife and she was talking about like urban ministry and stuff. She, you know, kind of what we were talking about, like this on the margins of evangelicalism, this ferment and wanting to do justice. And, you know, and she was that kind of person. And I was like, what, what is this? You know, and part of what's so interesting is this concern for justice became awakened in me literally by reading the Bible. That, that, and, that is, I could, from, from, from when I met my wife and what we talked about to coming to care about justice by reading the Bible, I'm right there with you. That is so fascinating. Yeah. And, and it's not as though I hadn't read the Bible before, right? I'd read it cover to cover and I had it was just complete blinders on like did not know that the Bible cared about poverty so bizarre but anyway and then so much more the Old Testament makes sense the the Hebrew scriptures make sense once once you realize like oh this is about justice like that's what they're so mad about yeah yeah (laughs) and and less about people and more about a people you know so the collective dimension but anyway um, so my wife and I married and even before we got out of school, cause you know, we were at Moody and then, you know, anyway, but, um, we moved to the West side of Chicago and that's where, you know, I was so uncomfortable. I was so out of my element. I'm the only white guy, you know, and having just experiences that to me were very strange. And that was when I really reckoned right with being white (laughs) and being a white christian and how those things were so entangled and um so that that was sort of uh the beginning of the personal journey that ultimately led to okay i'm gonna i'm gonna write a book about being a white christian (laughs) and and how that um what that has looked like in my um religious tradition and is that how you is that how you were drawn to academia or were you sort of already on that path and then i was not on that path and in fact i was quite um i thought i needed to do something very uh social servicey like i was working i was working at a group home i was um just wanting to be involved in some way in alleviating suffering and long story short my wife said if you could do anything you know we were in a transition point in our lives and I was like I've always liked history it seems like being a professor would be fun I had no idea what I was talking about oh my gosh that's how you got started and you're now on faculty at Valparaiso uh yeah (laughs) truly bizarre and this was literally this was that literally, that never happens for those listening that are not like it's like oh oh you think it would be fun to be a professor okay do not try this at home <laughs> and of course i had gone to moody it's not like i even had undergraduate history credits so i had to a decade ago i started going back to school to take undergraduate history classes so that i would be able to apply to a master's program <laughs> Um, but even then I was, I had become really interested in race and I was also having my own like crises of faith and race and stuff, but I didn't connect it to the academic too much at that time. Um, but then I came to temple in August of 2014, the month that Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson. And I just like, I remember having trouble focusing on my studies and, um, I was seeing how my people were reacting to this and I was seeing the hostility and I was like, okay, I've, you know, I, I need to just understand this. I need to know more. And, and I, and I thought, okay, well, how did we respond to the civil rights movement? Let me start there. And that's where 
the book started, really. Mm. You it it sounds like um, you're like a philosopher doing history. <laughs> well, I, I don't. I, I, mean, I don't know if that's a fair characterization, but but your like your words, I don't know, not maybe, mine, Scott. <laughs> well, well, well may, no, no. Well, what I'm saying is not not that like you're not a legit historian, right? But but um, maybe maybe uh, historians are more introspective than I'm than I'm giving credit for. But like you're you're sort of doing history from the perspective of like I want to understand how I am. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's it's quite I I came to feel that I didn't want there to be much separation between my life and my work. Um, I mean, in, the, in a sense, I like I, I wanted it to fit. And. Um, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that that the end product here is useful to others as as well i'm i'm i actually am hopeful that there will be lots of evangelicals some of them you know like we're saying on the margins able to read this book and have these like moments of like oh yeah i recognize that oh yeah i experienced that um but we'll see I, I hope I did I didn't mean to I didn't mean to to offend you with the philosophy oh, of history. No, uh, no I took it. Just, no, I'm I fascinated took it the by it. Okay, okay. I was it, I was thinking like what you're calling me a philosopher like that's too much. But anyway. Well, well, no, because because you because it's like you're the whole process. It, it's the the way you I, I'm understanding you. The whole process is like your search for like being an integrated person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I I mean I'm in awe of that in case that's not clear like that's um yeah that's that's awesome well thanks Scott now of course now that means that the second book is who knows that that makes the second book complicated because now I I don't know where to go now but <laughs> so that's the myth of colorblind Christians due out November 9th thank you so much right, Jesse Scott. I'm, I'm I'm really glad that Kristen uh, introduced me to your to your work. Likewise, thank you.